Good morning, everyone. And please turn to the letter of James with me. Now, last week we did an overview in James, and we saw that the big warning message in the letter is that some Christians will end up wandering from God's truth. And so as we move through the letter, we'll be asking, how does this happen? How do Christians end up wandering from God's truth? In our overview of the letter, the tip of the iceberg answer to this is being double-minded. To, to be double-minded is to split the soul or the mind in two, to claim you, you know God's truth, but the way you think and act fails to match up to that truth because your heart has turned away from God, and this leaves the soul in a very dangerous position. So this morning, as we dive into chapter 1, we will see how the first small cracks of double-mindedness start to appear in how the Christian responds to trials. So let's look down now at chapter 1 as I read from verse 1 to 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. How do you respond when something difficult or stressful happens? What about in those moments when your child is misbehaving or crying, the dog is refusing to walk, or your husband has turned on the kitchen tap while you're in the shower, causing the water to turn cold again? And that's a completely made-up example. That's never happened. <laughs> 
What about in those really painful trials, like when a loved one has passed away, a friend has backslided with their addiction battle, maybe a couple at church have, have lost their baby in a miscarriage, you've been fired from your job and don't know how you're going to pay the rent? How do you respond? Well, you might think it's only the, the super spiritual, the, the super Christian, who manages to trust God in the midst of trials. And for the rest of us normal ones, we just need to try and trust him. But if we don't, then it's okay and, and understandable. I want to suggest that James is challenging us on this way of thinking. In fact, he's saying that when we meet trials, if we're not responding by trusting God, it can actually be a dangerous thing. If we trust God's good work through trials, it will build and strengthen the soul. And so if we avoid and look to eradicate trials, labeling them as meaningless, then instead of strengthening, it may weaken the soul. Let's go back to the situation of the people James is writing to. Remember, the, in the overview, we said they've been forced to, to find a new place to live and to worship because they've been pushed out of Jerusalem. They were once Jews, but now they're converted Christians in the early church. And so they'll have faced persecution, which, you know, really big, big trials. But when James says in verse 2, various trials, if we look at the example of what's happening with them in the, the letter as a whole, it's the, it's the everyday struggles that is causing them problems. So I, can't, I don't think we can limit it to, to persecution. And I think we often see Christians united over the big trials, like leaving a, a denomination over the authority of Scripture, but then it's the more everyday problems that can really cause division in the congregation. And I think Rupert alluded to that at the very start this morning. The relentless daily battle of the Christian can really get people down. And so I think for most people reading this letter for the first time, the opening statement in verse 2 may seem like a really outrageous statement. Look down with me at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you're actually in the midst of a trial, that can seem like very upside-down, almost offensive logic. So what does counting trials as joy look like in reality? Well, here's what I don't think he means. He doesn't want you to force out a smile on your face when everything around you is going wrong. It's not about changing the way you feel in the moment, but fixating on what is happening in the hidden realm, behind the rubbish of the present situation. James is not saying that those trials look like rubbish, but are actually nuggets of gold. He's saying that something is happening to the soul that is worth way more than gold. Let's carry on reading verse 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
He's saying that although your world and your emotions seem broken, the soul is being made stronger. Because that's what steadfastness is, right? It's, it's to be unwavering, determined in what we believe, anchored in our position. The Christian who is steadfast under trial firmly believes God is working to bring about what we see in verse 12. Verse 12 works with verse 1 to 4 as bookends of the passage. So look down with me at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The Christian responds to trials with steadfastness because they know what God is doing to the soul. God is bringing about a unity and completeness in the soul so that God will one day bless the Christian with the crown of life when they finally move from these temporary slums to our glorious home with Christ. Sometimes we tend to think of life as seasons of good and bad, when you're facing a trial, we're, we're tempted to think if we can just hold on and, and make it to the good season, it'll be okay. In reality, life isn't like that. We cannot close our eyes until the storm dies down. We need to find peace all the time. For some folks, those bad seasons will never end. So James reshapes our thinking to see a hidden value in trials so that we can open our eyes in the midst of suffering and trust our God. Another thing James doesn't mean is that the bad thing has happened because God wants to bring about a good thing. Say, for example, you've lost your job. James is not saying we should think, ah, that's because God wants to give me an even better job. No, you, you've lost your job, and maybe you'll have to take a, a less enjoyable one with poorer pay. Maybe you will get a better job. The point James is making is that regardless of the situation, however good or bad, the, the Christian remains steadfast because they know that though it's painful for the flesh, it's joy to the soul. Now, imagine you're in the midst of a trial and a friend from church meets with you one-to-one -to, -one to have a coffee and says, look, I feel God's word in this letter could really help you here. How do you respond? You might think, how, you know, that's, how is that going to be possible for someone as weak as me? How am I meant to live like that? Well, James says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The Christian who feels weak or lacking in anything needs only ask God, and he will graciously give wisdom. But, question, what is wisdom? Let's flip the page. Just take a look at chapter 3. And look down to verse 17. 17 and 18. The wisdom from above 
is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice wisdom is not intellectual, but moral. It's about a certain kind of character. It is the steadfast Christian. The steadfast Christian who responds to trials by remaining unwavering, determined in belief, anchored in their position, remaining with Christ and like Christ. But what happens if you don't count them as joy? If James opens his letter with this big statement of verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, then it would suggest that there are some brothers among the people he's writing to who don't count trials as joy. And this, brothers and sisters, is where the small cracks start to appear in the eventual splitting of the mind, of becoming double-minded. Why? Well, if the teaching here is to think about trials as, as meaning God is working through them, the opposite of that is to consider trials as meaningless, meaningless misery. And so they will produce in us the opposite of steadfastness. Imagine hearing these words for the first time. You've gone to coffee with your friend, and you say, no, no way. There is only misery and trials just meaningless. What, what does that person think about that? What does that mean? They still feel weak, but they're also unwilling to believe God is going to do anything good through the trials they're facing. And in the end, this mindset for, for facing trials is not going to make them more stable, but unstable. Look down with me from verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. See how this imagery is the opposite of steadfastness. That's the effect of doubting, becoming like a ship lost in the storm, reducing your faith to one that is all over the place, thrown about by every struggle and every worry. That's the effect, but look at the result in verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What we have here are examples of two types of Christian. One who prays to God to remain steadfast when they, re when they meet trials, and God graciously gives that Christian the wisdom needed to see that trials are joy for the soul. The soul is fed, made stronger, complete and perfect, and that Christian is blessed by God with the crown of life. The other type of Christian is the one who just cannot get to that place where they could ever imagine God doing something good through the bad things in their life. Sure, they, they might pray, but their heart is, is long drained from the love for the Lord 
and now replace it with doubt. And so the trials, the bad things in that Christian's life, what do they count them as? Like a wave tossed by the wind, they become unstable, and the small cracks appear when they are under stress. In the end, they become double-minded. The small cracks grow and increase, and their mind and heart are split in two, moving ever apart to the point where they may outwardly call themselves a Christian still, but their heart has been turned away from God. Last week, I asked a few challenging questions that people seem to find helpful. Um, At this point, I would say one question we need to be asking ourselves is, do I really believe God is doing something good through this trial? Do I really believe God is doing something good through this trial? Because I think how you answer that will determine a number of different things. In particular, what you'll pray and ask God. If you believe God is doing something good through the trial you're facing, will you pray for the trial to go away? Or will you pray to graciously receive God's wisdom? To hold to the truth, anchored in your belief, for the soul to be fed, to be made stronger, complete, and perfect to be the Christian who is blessed by God for remaining steadfast and receive the crown of life. Will that be your prayer under trial? Or will you doubt there is any goodness to be had from the pain in your life? That illness, that crying child, that parking ticket, that broken radiator, that bully at school, that lonely feeling of being left out of your social circles for being a Christian, that grief for your friend or family member who's died, that broken heart from a past relationship, the stress and difficulty, difficulty of, of battling that addiction. Are you going to pray that these trials are removed from your life because they are meaningless misery? I think God is saying to you, if that's you today, that you need to be willing to invite his Holy Spirit into these trials and give you the strength to remain steadfast, to receive God's gracious wisdom and to be made perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Look down with me at verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 12 should make us think much bigger thoughts when we read verse 2 and 4 than just it being about personal growth mentality. It's a way bigger thing than just making our present life better and easier. It's the mindset of someone who loves God so much that they wholeheartedly trust him through every second of every trial. The mindset of someone who longs to be with him, to be blessed with the crown of life, and so counts trials 
as joy because God uses them to get us home, home with Christ. Remember the, the situational problems in this letter? Christians who are making a life in the world while trying to avoid being of the world. They're trying to make a temporary home in the world because they are citizens of heaven. And that often creates a, ten a tension and a temptation in how we live. If you've ever spent a, n a night away from home, you know it's almost like a, an instinct of ours to make the place we're staying in more homely. Things that we're used to. Even something small as taking your shoes off to be more, more comfortable. But if the Christian gets overly comfortable in their temporary home, it can lead to some very dangerous behavior, such as getting so comfortable that you consider trials as bad and meaningless things that are of no good to anyone and must be avoided at all costs and entirely forget to pray and ask God for his wisdom. And James provides us with a very real example of what this looks like. Most likely it's not an imagined one, but a problem uh, of the people he's writing to and something they're, they're dealing with. So let's take a look at that example. Verse 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, you might find this a, a surprising example of trials. Um, but like I said, various trials isn't just big, irregular, traumatic, almost one-off events. It includes the everyday struggle, problems that we all deal with. And is there a problem that we all share more than money, you know. So we have here the trials of the, the poor, the lowly brother, and the trials of the rich. And you might want to stop me at this point and say, do the rich have trials? Because if they do, well, they are the sort of trials I'd like to be dealing with. But notice how the poor brother receives encouragement and the rich gets a warning. The way James talks about the rich is very different. He says, man, not brother. The poor brother needs to be picked up from time to time to see above and beyond his present poverty, to see the great value of the future, to look beyond receiving government benefits, to keep going and receiving the crown of life. The rich man, however, well, he seems to be approaching danger. Look again at verse 10. The rich man is told to boast in his humiliation and is talked about as being like a flower of the grass who will pass away. Why is the rich man like a flower of the grass who will pass away? Well, if you look at verse 11, the, the image from James is of a flower reaching into the sky out of and above the grass. But... The grass withers because it cannot take the heat of the sun and so can no, no longer support the flower. The flower and its beauty, therefore, falls down and perishes. 
And James says this is like the rich man in his pursuit. If his soul, if the soil of his faith is not regularly watered and good for sustaining him, he will fall away under trial. His riches are his downfall. His riches make him unstable. But don't get me wrong, I'm I'm not saying money is bad. James is not saying money is bad. The point is that the flower will not last unless the grass has sufficient strength to sustain it through the heat. When trials come along, the poor brother has little option but to place his trust in God. It is in some ways clearer for the poor brother to see God as training the soul and embrace God's good work, praying in wisdom to God in the midst of suffering. Whereas the rich brother may be blinded by the reflection of his gold, and the big temptation for the rich brother under trials is to use his wealth to remove the trial from his life. I think James is saying the danger for the rich is effectively about trusting in their wealth. We all assume a bit more money would deal with most of our our problems, and that is probably true to some extent. But we need to consider the consequences of using wealth to eradicate our problems and the consequences of chasing the wealth so that we don't have problems. Devoting all of our time and energy to eradicating trials can be a dangerous thing. Because if trials increase our steadfastness, making us more stable in our faith, the absence of any trials will lead to our instability. No matter how hard we chase money and status, trials will come our way. How will our soul hold up? if it has no strength to do so. Now, there's, there's quite a lot there in that passage. James is a short letter, but there's really great depth. It's so powerful with its powerful statements, its illustrations, its examples of the Christian life. But in the end, I think there's a very simple question we can ask ourselves based on something that's easily skipped over in verse 12. Look down again at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfastness, uh, uh, steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I want to finish our time together drawing out the meaning of those last five words, to those who love him. Are we those who love God? Last week, we picked up the adulterous language of the letter um, to describe the Christian's betrayal of God. Um, This was most overtly seen in chapter 4. I think the image of the Christian as the bride of Christ is is very helpful. It it helps helps us to have a mental image of our relationship and gives us language to describe the dynamic. And consider how it helps in thinking about what it means to be of those who love God. Someone once told me that resentment is like relationship cancer. It grows like a weed round the hearts of lovers and blinds the person to the love that was once so extraordinarily vibrant. 
We see all the time in movies and books how couples who've been together for several years, even longer, have become lost in the overgrowth of resentment. And they either succumb to it, and that which was once beautiful is lost. Or they go through a cultivation process, clearing out the weeds and reaffirming their marriage vows to each other. Brothers and sisters, let us this morning check our hearts. Are we loving God by trusting him in the midst of suffering? Or has the weeds of resentment started to creep up and pull apart our love? How are we responding to the trials in our lives? Counting it as joy or just with resentment? Is our response evidence of a steadfast marriage? Or is it a prelude to divorce? If we look into our hearts, do we see a faith that leads to the crown of life or the doubt that leaves us nothing at all, splitting the heart and mind in two? Let's have a moment of prayer as we reflect on that. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it pierces our hearts very firmly and can be very challenging indeed. We keep with your word because we know it is true. We know that your word has authority over us. And as we move through this letter as a a family, I pray that we would all be reminded of your grace and your love as we look earnestly to grow, not just as individuals, but as a church family as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.